Roman Republic was still new. The revolution had only lasted a couple of years, but it had been hard. Not just on the Romans, but on Roman power as a whole. The king, Tarquin, had been kicked out of the city, and Rome was now ruled by rich aristocrats, which meant that the average citizen hadn't seen much of a positive change. You could even argue that the average citizen lost something, because a king might intervene on their behalf against their rich landlords, but without the king, the nobles had no check, and the people had no champion. And the people could use a champion. Times had been hard. The chaos of losing a king meant that a lot of the surrounding cities, the cities that Tarquin had conquered, had stopped sending tribute. Tarquin may have been an autocratic king, but his autocracy extended out to the neighbors and kept them in line. Plus, with all of the internal conflict, some neighbors like Lars Porsena had opportunistically attacked Rome, and Rome had been forced to raise a lot of legions from the plebeian farmers, which is always where Rome got their legions. The farmers fought against Lars Porsena or other tribes in the area, and they returned to their farms only to find that they had accrued debts while they had been away. Most of the people bought the farms with credit from rich moneylenders in the city, and those people had expected payments on these farms, but the peasants hadn't been able to farm while they'd been away fighting the wars. And so very often, these rich nobles, these patricians, took the farms themselves in payment for the debt. More than that, plenty of plebeians were taken into debt bondage. They were beaten, they were stripped, and they were humiliated by ever more aggressive debt collectors that had been hired by the patricians. Humiliation tends to play a big role in revolution, in wars in general. It is astonishing when you start reading medieval history how many wars were started because somebody felt insulted by somebody else. It's actually kind of tragic. And it's not something that is just in the ancient and medieval world. You can make a pretty strong argument that Bush Jr. fought a war in Iraq because his father had failed to conquer the country. They were drawing up plans even before 9-11, and Iraq had close to no connection to 9-11. It was a point of pride for powerful men. And when powerful men feel humiliated, a lot of people can suffer the consequences. And when powerless men feel humiliated... When powerless people feel humiliated, eventually they can make those consequences felt as well. And things were bad for the plebeians. They wanted reforms from the Senate. They wanted the Senate to recognize their humiliation, and they pled their case directly to the Senate. But the Senate did nothing. It was made up of patrician nobles, and they were more worried about giving up their own rights then they were interested in making sure all of the plebeians were being treated fairly. Finally, that led to revolution. The plebeians walked out and fled to the sacred mountain and forced the situation. In what would eventually be called the secession of the plebs, or the first secession of the plebs, they were sufficiently well organized to ensure that something needed to happen. 
and the Senate would eventually agree to create an office that would help the plebeians called the Tribune of the Plebs. The tribunes were two who would possess the power to veto any action that they felt was not in the best interest of the plebeians. And the plebeians took sacred vows to defend them at all cost, which made them sacrosanct. There was a young noble named Gaius Martius who didn't like any of this. He was an army officer and was part of the army that was attacking the Volscian city of Corioli. He was ambitious and determined, and during this attack on Corioli, he took a small group of soldiers and charged down an attacking force from the city, pushed straight through the men that had come out to fight them, and into the city and managed to open the gates to the massive Roman legion waiting outside. For his bravery and his determination, he earned the cognomen Coriolanus. So Coriolanus hadn't been quiet during the secession of the plebs. He disliked and had been frustrated by their growing power, and he let everybody know how annoyed he was. The plebeians, in turn, pinpointed him as a patrician to fight back against. Coriolanus had been so frustrated by the addition of the tribunate and so lifted up by the addition of his cognomen Coriolanus that he decided to run for consul. And he was a favorite to win. This was a popular guy. We're dealing with a Dwight Eisenhower here. But the plebeians who had organized the secession were really not happy with him as a potential leader. They saw him as a representation of the evil and oppressive establishment, and they worked hard to sabotage his campaign chances. So he went from the favorite to not getting the consulship at all, and he was humiliated. And when powerful men are humiliated, many can suffer the consequences. He became vitriolic. Rome was locked in a grain shortage for a very similar reason to its debt crisis. Farmers hadn't been working the land, and neighboring tribute kingdoms had gone into revolt and stopped sending tribute. So the people were fighting for the right to open the grain stores and distribute it to the hungry. And the nobles hated the idea of giving away food, because the nobles always fear the idea of nationalization of property. Coriolanus suggested a solution to give the people the grain if they agreed to disband the office of the tribune. Now, this was a sacrosanct office. It would be as if LBJ said, I will pull out of Vietnam so long as all of you give up your right to protest. It just did not go over well. Eventually, the Senate agreed to open the grain stores and distribute it to the people because they couldn't really have these plebeian farmers starving to death on their watch. And once they had gotten food, once they were no longer starving and hungry, the plebeians organized a trial of Coriolanus, a trial for attempting to subvert their sacred rights. And Coriolanus was so annoyed by this, so frustrated by this, that he refused to stand trial at all. He refused to recognize their authority to try him. And so he took voluntary exile among the Volsci, the people whose city he had assaulted, the people who inhabited Corioli. 
he found a friendly home among the Volsci. They were excited and interested to have such a great Roman general, and they were still smarting from a lot of the times that Rome had defeated them in battle. They asked Coriolanus if he would be interested in leading an army against the Romans. And Coriolanus, in his annoyance at his motherland and his frustration with what he had done, with what had happened to him, in his humiliation, agreed. And he began to fight his way back towards Rome. He fought victory after victory and would always let his army burn the farm of any plebeian they came in contact with. He was still holding on to those old grudges. And he fought his way with a Volscian army all the way to the gates of Rome. And again at the gates of Rome, much like Lars Porcena, he found himself facing down a single opponent. Unfortunately for Coriolanus, his opponent was his mother. Rome had sent her out to ask Coriolanus not to attack the city, to beg him to remember his roots and know where he came from. And Coriolanus, faced with his mother, wavered and then decided not to attack. He withdrew his army and returned to the Volscians, only to be executed when he came back. And now we must ask the question that we always ask about these early figures of Roman history. How much of this is true? Certainly, there's pieces that bear a striking resemblance to Horatius Cocles, an overwhelming force at the gates and an enemy determined to destroy Rome, only to be turned back by cleverness or moral imperative. It was probably an example of Roman storytellers rewriting history for a couple reasons. The Volsci had a historically provable large force, just like Large Porcena did, and it's possible that a lot of people remembered and knew well about the losses that Rome suffered to the Volscians. How is this possible? How could Rome, the greatest of all countries, suffer so many defeats at the hands of a small neighboring tribe? Obviously, they had a Roman general leading those armies to victory. Only Romans can defeat Romans. How could an army come to the gates of Rome and then be turned away? How could Rome not be conquered in this situation? How could such a large army come so close to Rome without conquering it, since we know Rome can't be conquered by some small tribe? Lucky for us Romans, we have the general's mother right here to go out and convince him not to attack the city. These pieces are probably too convenient, probably too easy, to have happened the way they are depicted. But it makes for a good story. Good enough for Shakespeare. He got one of his plays out of this. Well, thank you very much, and I hope each of you get to make some history today. Mm -hmm.